You know, I never really pegged you for a Disney World gent. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> you would have. You would Did have you just pegged, pegged me correctly. Uh, I, I no, I just uh, all of my children are getting older, um, and, and that, that, not just my children, but my the cousins, nieces yeah. and nephews, yeah. and uh, you know they're all in university now. So, and my wife's family are Disney hardcores. Uh, gotcha. Like, I often like skip them yeah. like they go without me okay but i felt okay. this one i figured everyone's together there were 17 of us I, I actually changed my mind at the last minute when they were committing to this trip i'm like no i'll sit this one out um but i'm happy i did it was, it was it was lovely and the star wars stuff down there is insane it's, okay. it's legit insane so uh <laughs> i just when i go to disney world i don't really like the rides i just right. like wandering around the transit system sure like just the so that was super fun and uh so everyone gets what they get out of it it's frightfully expensive it's terrifyingly expensive i can only imagine it's it's been a solid two or three decades since i went and i know it was expensive even back then now i can i can almost imagine my my image of walt disney world is the giant vacuum cleaner from space balls just <laughs> sucking money out of everybody it's just like this that's amazing money just flying into the corporate coffers that's you're already uh, <laughs> here we know we've got you totally <laughs> who wants a seven dollar bottle of water <laughs> welcome yeah. to wherever you are my name is ryan mcneil in toronto canada you are listening to episode 286 of the matinee cast it's the movie loving podcast of the matinee.ca your home for cinematic passion and perspective this past week was my birthday why, thank you. I don't feel a day over 29. My birthday falls at a time of year that seems to bring out titles that aren't much fun to talk about. I've, I've done some absolute garbage episodes at the beginning of June. No, no disrespect to my guests, just the content we were talking about just did not lend itself to conversation. Long ago, I decided to pivot somewhat and turn the birthday episode into a conversation about an all-time favorite. In the past, we've talked about Almost Famous, The Apartment, Saving Private Ryan, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and many others. There are much more fitting ways to celebrate another trip around the sun, especially if you're like me. Birthdays come at a time to look back as much as forward. So we continue the trend today with a film uh, in my own personal top 10. And of course, since we cannot do this alone, we have a guest. He's a man I've been happy to call a friend for nearly a third of my life now. And a man whose fingerprints are all over this podcast and its lifespan, formerly of Row3.com. Kurt Halfyard is here. How are you, man? I'm great. Well, happy birthday to you. Thank uh, you. What what number is it at the risk of embarrassing you? <laughs> this uh, is, is, it's okay. I, I, I keep getting that I don't look my age, and I take that uh, warmly. Uh, this is 44. 44. Okay. Ah, oh, you're young and <laughs> I'm, I'm really pushing I'm really pushing towards 50. So you got all your hair. Let's just say that. <laughs> that's good. Thank uh, that, you. That, that's like a big one right there. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, uh, this is... Uh, I, I'm happy you invited me to talk about this movie although it'll be curious to see what we have to say about it this movie has risen to the top of the is it the sight and sound yeah. poll is it the afi poll is it both BFI, uh, british film institute oh bfi so like it, it citizen kane i think ozu's tokyo story yeah. uh they, they're like the three mm -hmm. <laughs> that mm -hmm. kind of uh, so they're they're well talked about movies, uh, but I can tell you they're delightful to watch every single time. Oh yeah, and there's no loss of revisiting 
Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Definitely. Just, it, it's always a, a treat, as mean as it is. I, I, it's kind of <laughs> funny. Like they didn't go for the feel good. They didn't go for the. They went for something that was weird and mean. Yeah, they did. Kurt kind of alluded already, so we're going to kind of do a little bit of housekeeping just before we go uh, into full bore of the new slang. The movie that we're going to talk about today is nearly 65 years old. So while we usually try to stay spoiler-free on this show or sound a gong, that will not be the case today. So if by any reason you have not seen Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, please go see it and come back because we are going to spoil the holy crap out of this movie. Um, Kurt also mentioned that the film right now sits at the top of the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound's top 10 of all time uh, poll. They run this poll of filmmakers and film critics every 10 years, and we're actually due. There will be a new poll before the summer's out. So it is entirely possible that it will be unseated. Uh, It would be strange because usually a film sticks around in that top slot for, you know, at least two or three times. Citizen Kane had it for like five or six straight polls. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see. We actually did do... Uh, an episode that's deep in the archives. Um, I did one with Andrew James, actually, um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where in honor of the last poll, we put together our own lists and we just sat in a diner in Milwaukee after the baseball game, like talking about our top 10, like the top 10 movies. Um, So it'll be interesting later this summer to see what happens with the new PFI poll and if Vertigo does stay on the top. But for now, the new slang is Vertigo. Vertigo is directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's written by Alec Koppel and Samuel Taylor, based on the novel by Thomas Varsiak. It stars James Stewart, Kim Novak, Barbara Belgettis, Tom Helmore, and Henry Jones. Vertigo is about John Scotty Ferguson. That is Stewart. He's a police detective who begins this film with a rooftop chase that leads to his vertigo kicking in and seeing a fellow officer fall to his death. The whole incident leads Scotty to retire. Sometime later, a college friend asks Scotty to follow his wife, claiming that she has been acting quite odd. The wife, a woman named Madeline, played by Kim Novak, seems to be obsessed with a woman from the past named Carlotta, a woman whose own story is one of tragedy. Seemingly emulating Carlotta's dark fate, Madeline pitches herself into San Francisco Bay, sending Scotty jumping in after her and tethering the two souls together going forward. The tether is tenuous because Madeline seems unable to keep the spirit of Carlotta at bay and eventually achieves the suicide she set out upon, this time from a bell tower in a Spanish mission that Scotty cannot follow due to his vertigo, completing a tragedy of her own. That would be enough for most films, but vertigo does not stop there. In the film's second act, we come back to Scotty after a stint in a sanatorium where Madeline's death has left him bereft. When he returns to his day-to-day, he sees a woman on the street who reminds him of Madeline, He follows her and eventually learns that her name is Judy. This is Novak again. Judy takes pity on Scotty and embraces his advances, and soon we learn why. Judy was Madeline, or at least the woman standing in as Madeline, allowing Scotty's college friend to pull off an elaborate murder of the real Madeline. The obsession grows, hurtling us all towards a third and final tragedy. Vertigo is about several different things, but perhaps most prominently, it is about falling for something instead of someone, in this case, the embodiment of a person rather than the actual person. 
these feelings could apply to the film itself as well, falling not for it on its own merits, but its supposed importance. We talked already about its place at the top of the sight and sound pole. So pop quiz hotshot. Do you think a person coming into Vertigo falls for it on what it is or for something it supposedly embodies? Well, uh, there's so much going on in this. And just to be clear, when this movie came out in 1958, it was like one of Hitchcock's most hated films. Oh, yeah. Like he was mad that everybody yeah. didn't get it, to use that phrase. Yeah. Uh, but like any good science fiction uh, filmmaker will tell you it takes 25 or 50 years for people to come back around. So uh, if anything, it was the opposite. It was the people didn't fall for what it was at the beginning. And it took them a while to see the real package, which is character, which is filmmaking, which is craft, which is ingenuity because of course this movie invented the the, the dolly shot the the, the the shot that if you know what that shot is you will see it in everything even yeah. animated films use dolly shots yeah, uh, yeah. Like famously in ratatouille you have to kind of embrace uh your dark side this is a noir this is a this is a classic noir style film in that there are no well there's one one good character in the movie, which the film shunts her out of the film. Oh yeah, the, oh, the film is so terrible. Mean. To the, it's so the one, yeah, the one good person. So mean to the <laughs> most, possibly the most charming, relatable, uh, just delightful character uh, in any Alfred Hitchcock film. He's like, well, we have no place for you here. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. Uh, Here's your and, hat. Thank you for stealing. <laughs> for, well, no, she doesn't need her hat. Clearly, <laughs> it's right in the text of the film. I don't need my hat. And she's gone. This is the reason why it's at the top of the poll. It's it's challenging. It's a challenging film. It was probably the eighth or ninth time I've seen it. I've seen it in every media. I've seen it on VHS. I've seen it on DVD. I've seen it theatrically several times. I think I saw it blown up into like 70 millimeter once. With um, me, your first with, show oh. with me, we had gone that evening to see Vertigo and then we came back to my place to record ah, it. A totally different yeah, film. Totally unrelated. There you go. <laughs> we put so, another film in the way of the film we were talking about. Uh, a, a dangerous film to put in the way of the film no you're kidding. talking about because you, the, 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 the interesting thing about Vertigo as well is that it just ends like it 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 ends with what the film is about rather mm -hmm. than in a satisfying like there's a lot of frayed loose ends in the movie that the filmmaker is like i don't care i yeah. want you to walk away with a feeling yeah not with a let's tie this up into a bow yeah uh, and and that is also jarring to i i i, I the the fictional audience that wants safe digestible um you know, plot-driven stories. There's a beautiful plot in this movie, and it's it's when you watch it for the first time. I mean, that mystery. You lean in. You lean yeah. in hard into everything that this movie is doing. Uh, however, on multiple viewings, you you the plot is still there, but you kind of absorb its tone and its feeling, and you have to kind of sink into its own like poisonous green murk yeah. as you watch the movie and that's the satisfying thing of watching vertigo multiple times i mean for to answer my own question i actually think it's both i think people are drawn into it for what it embodies i think like people will look at lists or people will look at you know like you know like listicles or or, or videos or whatever or countdowns and 
they'll circle it because somebody says this film is important. But I think it stays with them for what it is, for everything that you just mentioned and for being um, so very dark. First of all, like this is pitch black, which is kind of ironic considering actually how bright and colorful it is. Um, you know, uh, Hitchcock's Hitchcock wasn't really known for his color palette. Like you don't hear him spoken of the same way that you hear the Dardens or that you hear somebody like Wong Kar Wai or Alma Dovar, like one of those people who really seems to understand color quality and contrast and, 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 you know, the emotional response that it gets Hitch, Hitchcock. He, he was more interested in photography in terms of composition and in terms of, you know, um, the actual technical effects. And he was necessarily the color palette. So it's, it's, it's amazing to see him using color in this way that he does in this movie that to, to great effect, of course, because he cares and he's a master and anything he picks up, he's a virtuoso with it. Once somebody gets in it's like being set up on a date with somebody who you're told is rich. Selfishly, I'm going to like you because this is an, a gateway into an exciting life. And then you get there and it actually happens that they are also an interesting person. That's what I think Vertigo is. I think it lures people in with reputation. And once they're there, it just holds them with two hands because it's like, oh, I'm going to mess you up. I can't disagree with any of that. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I must admit, um, I vehemently dislike uh, Scotty, John. Really? I, I, maybe because he can't pick a name. Um, okay. <laughs> but no, I just I don't like him as a character, but I I like watching him be manipulated in the movie. I, maybe that's just, um, I mean, you know, what's crazy about that manipulation? Like this is not the only Hitchcock movie where there is, uh, you know, a nefarious, a nefarious murder. Cause there's any other kind yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. where there is an elaborate, uh, murder plot at the center. Like, you know, he did it again with strangers on a train. He did it with dial in for murder. There's all kinds of stories where at the center of it, there's a murder where we need to cover up the murder. You know what I'm saying? This one, though, the actual idea that Gavin hatches of this is how I'm going to off my wife is so elaborate and bananas. It almost boggles the mind that he's like, this is my Patsy. He has this problem that I can exploit. And if I play a really, really, really long con, I can off my wife. It is, the, it is of you- all the Hitchcock movies, it is the most loop-de-loo way to get to killing one's spouse. Do you have a sense conceive. of the timeline of the film? Like how long from when he tails her uh, the first time? By the way, did Jaguar ever make green cars? Like, I don't know, but I won't. I, you don't see green I, cars anywhere even today. Like green is an unusual color. But anyway. It was, it was yeah, it was, it was hot for like a, a quick minute in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but but then not not now. Like you don't see that dark green anymore in a car. But my 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 point is, what is the entire time frame from when he oh, yeah. starts tailing her in her car to when uh, they go out south of San Francisco to the uh, like that that 
monastery estate with the with well the I, yeah on. and that i mean that's, that's that a week that, it, that's i mean it seems <laughs> it, like just it, it seems like three just days, days. yeah it, right, like, right. it could even be just all in one day from the time that he starts following her to the time that she pitches herself into the water so that the, that feels like a day and then they re, you know they they reunite just a day or two later uh, and, and then, yeah. And then, then she's out in the woods. It's, it's not like, that's the thing. The timeline in this movie, now that you mentioned it is not very clear. Well, and, and, but, I, but my point is it's less loop-de-loo as you say it, the more you compress the timeline. Like if, if this, like, if this was, if this was drawn out over like eight months, you're like, wow, that is uh, you know, that is pretty elaborate and risky because you know, the wife is walking around, uh, yeah. uh, doing stuff or whatever. So, um, they could bump into each other. Yeah. Uh, um, but, uh, but, but, but the, the more compressed timeline, you're like, okay, maybe, maybe he was interested in a quick turnaround. I, I actually don't find the plot loop-de-loo at all. It's, I it's, actually, I it's loop-de-loo the in the way that it's like, here's a guy who has vertigo and I happen to know him. So I'm going to make sure that I get him to fall for my wife or at least get him, you know, fascinated with my wife and then send her up a tower. <laughs> you know, there is a, there is a lovely tell in the in the screenplay early on when, okay. when uh, his friend says, "I saw you in the papers." Right. You know what I mean? Like as if to say, "I know." Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like he. Yeah. Th- there's a, a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of those, but I guess what I'm saying is why I like the poetic justice or whatever that happens. Well, to everybody in the movie except for the actual grand villain who just disappears. Yeah. Uh, but the like Scotty. John, whatever you want to call him, depending on how close you are to him. There, all this talk is about him remaking Judy into Madeline. That, that's yeah. like when people talk about the weirdness of, or even auteur theory, if you want to go uh, over to you know, what the French critics were talking about at the time. They always talk about how dark it is. But, it, but more dark is actually him becoming what the grand criminal, his buddy, because he made... Uh, just for some random woman into his wife yeah. so that she could play the part. So there's this dual remaking mm-hmm. uh, thing going on. And then the first time she does uh, from her po- point of view and the, the movie doesn't, it doesn't completely remove agency from Kim Novak's character, but at the same point, it, it doesn't exactly lean into it either. It was 1958. No. Yeah, but yeah. at the first time it's clear that she's just doing it for money. She's she, she, it's a job. Like, I love watching the tension. It's like watching Marla West in Fight Club after yeah. the old Fight Club. Like you watch the tension when she's like, "Boy, he's he's a little nuts to be like remaking me into the part I played for this other guy to kill his wife." Yeah. But at the same point, she has an honest attraction and and connection with him. Yeah, and which you so can she's see like, on her I'm, face. Like, oh, it's it's a really great performance. I I yeah. really really love that m- section of the film. Yeah, uh, because she's like her first performance is is artificial by design. She's acting, playing someone who's acting. Well, but then it, later, you you actually see all the cracks in yeah. her emotional space. I really like that. Novak in this movie is actually doing an awful lot like that, that's one thing that yeah. i think is is really really undervalued about this movie is how much is really asking novak to do um on the in the first half when she's playing madeline the movie is going out of its way to play her up like every every photograph of her is composed to a t the score underneath her is that swelling melodramic you know bernard herman 
you know, you inside of Scotty's head falling for her, you know, like she is basically, she may as well be, and, and very much is when you look at it, a, 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 an art piece in that gallery that she goes to, you know, as she drifts yeah, through. She's, a, she's like basically laying out the fishing line. She's a yeah. composition. Yeah. And, and the film, and the film makes sure to beat that hook perfectly. Well, you for know? us it, too, it, it, yeah, for the it, audience yeah. as well. It, it knows yeah. how shiny, yeah. it knows yeah. how young, it's like, you know, this water, this time of year, I need to put this on it and then I'll get them all. Um, and then, yeah. And then in the second half, when she comes back and she's Judy, she's doing a lot in her, in her face, especially like not to give herself away completely over and over and over. Like even just from the first moment she sees him, like there's that flicker of recognition, but she's holding back enough. Cause she knows if she really reacts, she's bone. You know, how did you feel about uh, the, the scene where he's at her, the threshold of her apartment and there's this push and pull of go away, come in, go away. Like it's, it's, it's very like um, pushing boundaries. Like it, it really is uh, like to a modern sensibility. It's, 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 I don't know what it felt like in 1958, uh, but, but it feels icky. Yeah. In 2022. Yeah. That's the one thing that's been interesting about going back over some of these movies is being able to um, appreciate them for their craft and for everything about them for, for, you know, their, um, their technique and their legacy and everything like that. But also understanding that, uh, the, you know, a lot of what the attitude of the time was is now terrible. Like we did an episode, uh, you know, in this spot of the year, a few years ago on Raging Bull and watching that, I was like, this movie is a technical masterpiece, but looking at this man in a modern lens, I have no time for him because he's just an absolute garbage fire of a man. Um, what like anybody else, but James Stewart in that moment, um, this film would have a very, very, very big problem. It's already got a big problem but have a very, very, very big problem. And, but I mean, and that was, unfortunately, that was the thing back then, right? Was guys just did not take no for an answer. And, you know, she was just overmatched. It never should have worked. It, 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 it still does just because this film is already well, just so dark. It, it also does because this isn't just a simple stranger consent issue. She has way more information at that moment than she has. And she has some sort of emotional investment. So uh, I kind of, Hitchcock gets a pass. Like, (laughs) cause there, there are plotting reasons for this, but at the same point, it does mesh in with the cult. Like it could have been, a cold call too. Like yeah. that scene could have been well, played I mean, the same she, way. I mean, she does call bullshit on that, right? Like she's like, you've got a lot of nerve, like following me up to my hotel door. Yeah, like, to, and, right and, to I mean, her room. Yeah. And that is, <laughs> that is pretty messed up. Like, you know, I don't care what age you're in. It is, it is very messed up to follow somebody up to their front door. Uh, you know, like security back in the late fifties was not what it is now um, where you need like key cards just to get in the elevator. Yeah, like there's there's a lot of this movie that is really really um, dark. Uh, you know, Hitchcock notoriously was was pretty dark towards his female characters. Um, th- this is no exception. Um, he's actually a little bit kinder to Madeline Judy than he is to some of the other women in his movies, but not by much. That that's where his obsession like it it starts. But that's kind of the harbinger of what's to come in terms of 
the clothes and the shoes and the hair and her makeup. Like if you need any indicator as to where this is going, him following a strange woman from the street front all the way up to her hotel room door, you know, that, that should spell it out to you right there. Yeah. I like the, uh, you mentioned clothes. I I like the, uh, the costuming, the, Mm -hmm. the the overall uh, wardrobe, which plays into plot, like in a huge way uh, in this movie, it was uh, Edith head, uh, a very famous uh, costume designer, obviously was parodied as uh, Edna. (laughs) Edna mode in in the Incredibles uh, with the round glasses and whatever. But like the, if you look at like, I mean, there's even conversations about wardrobe. There's the conversation with Midge about the like engineered uh, bra at the beginning. And then you watch Madeline be introduced in that green dress in this like red, red, almost womb like restaurant, uh, which they keep revisiting in the Mm -hmm. film. And then when Scotty is like, kind of manipulating her to get more answers. Now he's got the green sweater on, right? And and whatnot. And then when he meets Judy again uh, later, she's got the green polka dot kind of outfit on. And then, of course, the signature scene in the movie, the, the, the scene that just makes my jaw drop because Technicolor was never exploited for green as much yeah. as it should have been. And yeah. that scene where they're, where they're in the Empire Hotel and... Um, Hundreds of filmmakers have stolen that look where there's a vertical marquee and it lights the interior yep. and it's all this ghostly, just like um, you feel like zombie pirates are going to be coming out of the curtains. <laughs> like it's that level of toxic yeah. uh, green, uh, like, you know, some poison mist. I, I have to go back and, and rewatch other Hitchcock movies to see if he used wardrobe to tell the story as much as he does in this movie. Probably not, but I mean like possibly, but probably not. Um, and certainly not to the effect he does here. Okay. So it's interesting. You mentioned the green. Um, the last time that you and I talked, we talked about the green nights uh, on this show last summer when I was, uh, when I went out and, stamped my passport and went out to Mississauga and had uh, had dinner and we talked about the green night and we talked about in that movie how the green represented both life and rot you know like 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 decay and that's an interesting thing in this movie because he actually talks going to those going to the woods going out to mere woods he talks about how the name means like evergreen ever life or something like that and that's part of why we keep seeing so much green around this movie, the green sweater, the green car, the, the famous green glow. I, I, I don't know. Like I, the, the idealist in me wants to think that that much green is there to represent life. But at the same time, I'm like, because this movie is so nasty and is so um, in some ways almost paranormal when you talk about like ghosts, you know, like we were talking about like the ghost of Carlotta that she's presumably following around. I kind of think that a lot of that green in this movie represents rot. Uh, well, I would say it represents dishonesty, and and that's not it represents normally, jealousy. Uh, well, jealousy and dishonesty are different things uh, by a long shot. And I know that if you watch, like, sort of, you know, what in in Western culture, because obviously every culture uses yeah, colors yeah. mean different things. Uh, but in Western culture. Uh, green has like a lot of things that it represents, many of which you just said. I've never heard 
dishonesty. Toxic, yes, but I've never heard dishonesty. And I and I feel like again, she's leading him through the wild goose chase in her green jaguar. The the funeral or the the the, the what is it? The graveyard is yeah. just a big elaborate giant show. Then when he starts to seduce her after picking her out of the bay, and he's got his green sweater on, and then she's not being honest to him about what she knows. There's this great crash flashback where the the movie finally lets you in. Like this is classic Hitchcock letting yeah. the audience in before the characters, right. uh, but where it lets you in, she's got the green polka dot dress. And then when she's slowly being transformed by force into this caricature of a person, which you know, the great lie that, that James Stewart's character is in love with, uh, you've got that green, when she, she literally walks out of green light. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's the remaster cause I watched the 2012 version, yeah. but it's blinding when she yeah. comes out of the green light. It's almost like she's a ghost and she comes like right through out of the, the yeah, out of the haze. Yeah. 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 Out of, like out of one dimension into another, uh, unre- unrelated, uh, uh, very famous, uh, very experimental Canadian filmmaker Guy Madden has a editing art project called The Green Fog, where he builds Vertigo out of clips from other movies set oh, really? in San Francisco and layers on that shade of green huh. at the key point to the whole thing. And it's, uh, I think it's available for free on Vimeo, but it's just kind of this like, weird tribute to movies shot in San Francisco and, and obviously the, the way green is used in, in send me a uh, link. When we're done. I'd, I'd love to include yeah. that in the show notes. If it's, if it's out there and it's available you know, uh, before, before we get off that scene though, there's yeah. one thing that has nothing to do with green. I'll yeah. leave the green aside for now. Okay. There's an edit in not, not the, 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 the smash yeah. flashback that I'm talking about, but literally in that scene where he's transforming her, where He's kissing her, and the camera spins around, and then he's in the the Spanish stable thing, and then it keeps spinning, and then he's back in the room. It is such an elegant uh, fade, and uh, I I don't. I would love to ask Taiko Atiti, the New Zealand filmmaker. He made this film with Sam Neill called uh, "Hunt for the Wilder People," which is like a great, great. As much as you think Thor is awesome, and it is pretty good. Uh, it has nothing on the hunt for the wilder the people, subtlety yeah. and whatever hunt for the wilder people. But he does this thing where they're lost in the woods, yeah. and it's done with this spinning. And it's like any time a filmmaker, at least to me, to my sensibilities, seems to come up with a new way of showing an edit, mm-hmm. it blows my mind. And now I'm like, oh, maybe take take a vertigo. You know what I mean? Because like, it's kind of there. I, I don't think it's kind of like rope. Like, you know, Rope is one of these first films where it's uh, like supposedly all one take, but of course, limitations of film magazines. So they kind of zoom in on the wall or on people's backs. It's pretty clumsy. Like, to be honest, the the idea is grand, but the execution, given the tools that that they had at the time and, you know, other filmmakers now, like what was that World War One movie that was made? Oh, 1917. Uh, You know, it's it's a shit movie, but technically it's astounding. Yeah. and, you know, so clearly it can be done now seamlessly. And I, I kind of think of, you know, how did we get from Vertigo to Hunt for the Wilder People, really? Well, I mean, and even just, 
you know, even just moving around that shot, like taking, like flipping the background in and out, that's, that's a master stroke, but even just that circular, you know, mm. like lap of this couple is still not that easy when you consider that the camera at the time is the size of a fridge or a phone booth. Yeah. 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 You know, so even just, even just laying down, you know, they, they were probably on something that was spinning, but, but however you do, but the, the room moves, that's the thing. It's not just, you know, I'm just going to, there's a lot of this movie. This, this, this movie is actually a, a really, really great example of uh, composite shots. There's a lot of this movie where outside the window is a screen and we're, you know, we're seeing San Francisco and behind the movie is in San Francisco and does make a great use of San Francisco as a setting. But there are also a lot of times where what's happening outside of the set is not what is practically happening outside. Of right. The it's set. a set. Yeah. This is not one of those, like this is a shot that it is not so clearly you know, that screen moving in and out as, as it is the physical room that they're in and how that gets, you know, brought in and out. So even if they were just spinning, um, it would still be an astounding shot to physically pull off. What makes it even crazier is that it is like the thematic heart of the movie yeah. is that these guys are dizzyingly crazy going for it despite yeah. all of the baggage on both of their yeah. sides. Like, to, to, it's one thing to create a great technical shot it's another thing like an idea for it it's another thing to pull it off it is a whole third thing to have it be thematically integrated into the movie in yeah. such a way like that is like that's the holy trilogy of film innovation yeah. that's that's yeah. why this movie is at the top of those lists by the yeah. way because yeah. not only is it a great story and not only is it complicated set of performances uh, but it is technically innovative and it's not just technically innovated like a gap commercial or something no. where they're like, ah, oh, we get this new technique. Let's sell jeans. Yeah. Uh, no, it's actually telling the story with the technical innovation. The technique is in service of the narrative. Well, not I mean, and nothing's more, nothing's more in tune to that. I actually I always have this impression that they, there's more dolly shots in this movie than there actually are. <laughs> They're actually quite sparing. If you ever watched the documentary on how hard it was to do that, that, that the, in the church tower, which is yeah. done with models, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it matches the actual physical space, like yeah. unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I think it was, it's kind of a Bruce Shark thing. Like, yeah. this is really hard. <laughs> we have to make targeted use of this. But they, I think they only use it four times in the film. I think another thing that I was really struck by rewatching the film this week was, was two, two things about it. I mean, aside again from just every time I come back to it, I, I keep being astounded by how macabre it really is. <laughs> yeah. But like just every time I think in, I, in I, the I, quaint 1950s in the Aussian yeah, Harriet, uh, yeah, 1950s. Yeah. Fifties is the secret dark decade. <laughs> every, you know, every time I think I've prepared myself for, yeah, I'm going to be going in for a dark story. I'm like, Oh no, this is a really dark story. Um, but beyond that, um, I think what I was struck by this time was um, how patient this movie is mm. um, and how big this movie is. I was just watching it on my TV, uh, but still seeing how large the city and the set plays in and just keeps dwarfing these people or the rooms that they are in or the so much driving. In. There's so much driving in this. There's movie. so much driving. So that's. I mean, that that comes back to the patience. So like when he's following her uh, through San Francisco, always driving down, 
by the way, always descending. Oh, we are didn't, never didn't notice that. We are Thank never going that. up. Thank we you are, for that. Yeah, never we are noticed always that. going down. That's yeah. hilarious. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah, uh, exactly. We are use always, the city, man. Exactly. Excellent. You know, um, excellent. It's it's a long like that's a long ass follow. You know, from the moment he sees her leaving that that one door yeah. and he drives with it through the, the you know the, the flower shop then to the gallery then to the cemetery then finally out to the bridge where she takes her jump i like i didn't clock it or anything but it's like that's got to be at least a solid 15 minutes of just him watching her that takes some balls well to, you know, to put that into your movie you know hitchcock he's like he likes to watch you know, yeah no, but the bombshell that doesn't go off, mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a physical explosion. It can yeah. totally be a plot. Like, yeah, I, although I, I must admit, as much as like it, it, the, the back half of the film is meaty, uh, yeah. that that down the rabbit hole, as it were, of the beginning film uh, is great because, uh, you know, the the scenes with Midge, which are so charming and so effortlessly fun. Because uh, you got to kind of have that contrast, um, and then even the the hey old boy, uh, I feel oh my god, he he's in America, but he's pretending he's 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 back to being Britain. Like they're <laughs> like we're university chums, and remember right. the the rugby and the fisticuffs. Like it, it, it's it's kind of that is not overly endearing to me. <laughs> but no. once like you you let um, uh, John Scotty uh, into his own like private headspace and he doesn't have someone else in the room and he he just he's he's basically let, let let's uh let's get really dark here he's like the guy on the internet in 2022 going down the misinformation and all of a sudden he's in his own alternate reality that in, in a way if you want to view art through the prism of now mm-hmm. um He's the that's, one. St- he's the one stalking her Instagram feed and putting together oh, his narrative. Oh, in, in, in all except of that, back then and, he had to do it at, at a distance of four car lengths. And, and back then, not so many guns. No. Let's, <laughs> so uh, that's why this movie keeps its resonance. It's funny in the movie they lament about old San Francisco, San yeah. Francisco, and then um, and then you watch David Fincher's Zodiac, and it's kind of you know this love letter, even though it's a it's a serial killer uh, to like this. 1960s era late 60s era like mm-hmm. the hate kind of yeah. a- area san francisco and and then again using old growth old growth forest and 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 flowers and these sort of like uh um you know fecund metaphors or whatever it's it, this regrowth cycle thing and then of course the cycle of lies and oh it's it's <laughs> you know i just get as dark as the movie is i get warm and fuzzy thinking about just how well this movie's made because yeah, because it's beautiful that's the thing is yeah, for, yeah and for, that's the thing yeah you know like i i constantly use the if, if there's one metaphor i've used on this show over 286 episodes more than anything else it's the francis bacon painting of like flayed meat you know it, it is it is something gorgeous of something distasteful that you would not think is beautiful but when you put it in the hands of somebody, it becomes just so fascinating and something you can't take your eyes off. To say nothing of the fact, as I was mentioning, that the film also just constantly dwarfs its characters. It, it constantly 
you know, whether it's in the gallery and I've, I've never been to that gallery in San Francisco, but it just makes that, that, that atrium, that one salon look so huge. Well, the actual structure itself. Is yeah. I was going to say the exterior it. shot is imposing. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah, yeah. Massive. Um, you know, even just the, 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 the aftermath of Madeline's supposed death, you know, where we're watching from the top of the bell tower and we're watching like, people who work at this mission like find this body on the on the ceiling and just down the corner you can see scotty leaving mm. the ground like you know like it's it's it's, like, it's just this, like, very there, little yeah. small little guy like walking it's always just making us feel so small in this it, it kind of it really does mirror the elaborateness of this plot you know like how many wheels had like how big this plot actually is even though it's reasonably simple Guy suffers vertigo. If I kill my wife up here, I need him to witness it, but not witness it. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, that's your that's, that, that, elevator that, pitch. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. That that's that's it in a nutshell. But it is still so elaborate. Well, the way this movie does that over and over again by dwarfing its characters with the size of the setting is is pretty pretty damn cool. I wish people listening to this could see your gesticulation. <laughs> you, you're drawing bigger circles. It's a, yeah, it's an, it's an you, audio medium, but I still talk with my hands. Uh, yeah. Two two things totally unrelated. Uh, you're bang on with the patience thing. The Saul Bass opening credit sequence, just with moving around her face, yeah, uh, and 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 pulling things in and out of the eyes, uh, is pretty. Interesting. And then in inside, I guess, her head, you get these like spirally artistic and then it zooms out back when it says Alfred Hitchcock. I thought, oh, that's a very patient credit sequence, as as you are probably sick of me saying, why do films eliminate these credit sequences? They at the beginning of the film, I mean, because they really do set the tone of the film. Mm -hmm. And this one's already giving you, here's what we're going to talk about (laughs) in the opening credit sequence. It's funny. Oddly enough, I did actually bring that up. Um, I've, I've only been lucky enough one time to have Lola from the art of the title on this show. I keep asking her to come back and she's just far too busy. Um, But I had her on one time and I did ask her what she thinks of movies that put these elaborate sequences at the end. And what she actually said, which is pretty apt is when you put it at the end, it's a bow. At the beginning, it's an introduction, and it's and it's a and it's a. Um, it's a tone setting. It's back when you know it, it's if you if you imagine it as the Broadway show, it's the it's the entract. You know, it's yeah. it's the intro, which film does too. Yeah, uh, occasionally, but not yeah, but not as often. Now, no, no. now it's a bow. But you're right, like an elaborate bow, an elaborate curtain call to yeah, play when most people are actually on their way. It's not the same as in a theater where people clap. For but, the for the performers. Okay, who who are the films that do this at the end? The big plasticky yeah. blockbuster superhero the, movies. Yes. They do not deserve to bow. They're already selling you the next ticket. There's not a bow if they're like exit through the gift other show. Shop. But that's that, uh, okay. that that's okay, okay, why okay, okay. I'll get out of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Disney but World. this sorry, movie but sorry, you're right. Sorry. This movie uh, this movie is not a bow. Actually, this movie, again, it's we're done here. Yeah, yeah. See you later. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, I, I, say hi. I, to, say hi to your therapist for me. I, I, I want to. No, there's a, there's a few other films uh, that that do that. It's funny. A, a few of the more sort of classically like vetted movies. Um, I haven't haven't out. I can't think of off, off the top, but I I think of something like Ben Wheatley's Kill List. Like it just yeah. ends. Like yeah. boom, there it is. Like yeah. 
I'm not gonna, you yeah. process it. Yeah, and then exactly. no one claps at those movies. No. Everyone just sits there like stunned. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Because, and I, and I feel that this, this movie, Oh, you see the Paramount logo at the end and you're like, excuse me. <laughs> like yeah. I have questions. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because I remember, um, you know, two episodes ago on this show, we talked about, uh, after Yang, uh, with Andrew Robinson. And he said that there is, any story you want that you find that the ending of it is jarring or the ending of it just does not give you an ending. There is a version of this story where 15 minutes later, the world just ended, you know? So that's, it's like the movie just stops any story you want to think about. It stops. Like it, it can continue. Right. It chooses not to. And that ending, you know, whatever happens next could be the world just blew up. Um, and that could, you know, that, that, that could have been this movie as well. well in movie, all fairness is done because everything that we need to know has been accomplished. If you want to see Hitchcock in a moment of uncertainty, um, three years later, he would make psycho, which is arguably also a masterpiece on, it's not even arguable at this point. Yeah. It just is objectively, but he pulls his punch at the end of psycho, like the, the big, like bah, 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 at the yeah. end of psycho. And then he's like, let's walk this psychologist out to explain stuff to us. Like he's like, ah, I got burned on the vertigo thing. He didn't yeah. wait the 50 years, but he, I got burned. So now I'm going to come out and, you know, cause speaking of the bow versus the, uh, like entry, like a lot of Hitchcock's, uh, trailers are these like elaborate set walkthroughs, like where he's like, there's some strange things going on here. So he, is very good at doing what I would call that sort of expl explanatory ending as the teaser, which I feel is a much better place for it, to be honest, but then, at the end. But Vertigo is pure. He he went for it, and uh, he got punished in the moment. But yeah. hey, BFI number one for a few years running, mm, not a terrible place to be. I mean, you know what's crazy, too, about the way he drops us right into the meat of this movie with that, with that rooftop chase mm. and, and the death is... I mean that like that that death is shocking. Like you know, you're, you're, start, you're starting, a movie, you're starting a movie with a guy yep. dropping off a roof and 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 his buddy not able to help him because he he has a goal. and cruelly following it down like the uh, yeah that's hard to do realistically and by the yet way. It's done in the well. grand scheme of things it's meaningless. It's only there to you know what I mean. It's like we well, have just pitched a person off a roof. And it's only it's there a plot point. to yeah. underline the yeah, fact yeah, yeah, that this yeah. guy is afraid of heights. There are so many ways you could have explained that this guy's yeah, afraid yeah, of heights, yeah. including the very next scene where he's, you know, just going up on a stepladder and he blacks out. You could right. have done it that way, but it's like, no, we no, need but kill a dude. The movie's about trauma. Really so the movie's about trauma, so it has to be done with trauma, right? <laughs> like, like it, the movie, the movie is, it almost goes out of its way in the middle with some exposition to say, this he didn't have this all of his life. This is like PTSD before mm -hmm. it was, uh, before Even it was, and you yeah. know he kind of he kind of overcomes his PTSD by being a worst human, which again is a dark message. I want to circle back though uh, to Midge, who is my yeah. I just I love her to death in mm -hmm. this movie, but the movie cannot keep the slime off of her either. No. Uh, there. <laughs> that sequence because the movie is about obsession right yeah. and that sequence where who knows how long it took for her to paint that painting but <laughs> that weird like you thought this was a good idea seduction moment that that she has is dark and you actually 
see her like meltdown afterwards, which is, I mean, the movie kind of forgets about it later because she's kind of becomes his mom <laughs> mm-hmm. for a while, which is also creepy. Let's, let's be honest when she's talking like she's his would be lover and his mother at the same time. That's a little, mm. um, but yeah, like when you see her dark side, even the most pleasant character, that's almost cruel what she does. And she thinks that it's going to work. Like it's, it's just, it's strange. And it's, I mean, I'm happy that it's there, uh, but it's very strange. I mean, it's, it's really there to underline appearances, right? Like this movie is really quite fixated with appearances and how, you know, like you should be able to talk to somebody for a little while and understand who they are and come away with, okay, this person, this person is naive or okay, this person is selfish or what have you, you know, positive or negative, you should be able to spend a little bit of time with somebody and come away with who they are. But the characters in this movie, all of them really, um, seem to be fixated on who they perceive the person in front of them to be instead of who they actually are. Midge should at a certain, like, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a line in there about how they were engaged for 15 minutes. Yep. Um, you know, she should really understand who Scotty is, you know, like forget about the fact that he looks like James Stewart and forget about the fact that he's well tailored and tall and pleasant. It's like, this is a guy who's got a lot of baggage. And if I was smart, I probably is a narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I was smart, I would move on. And yet it's like, no, but I, the way I see him, that's probably who he actually is. You know, Madeline and Judy, same thing. I love the, I love that fixated on who he thinks she should be. And you know, how the movie presents her to us in this really, really just idealized, glowing Bernard Herman score kind of way rather than this is somebody who's got a lot of darkness to them and I should be nowhere near. And then even Judy later on, like when she, like she, she falls for him the way you would fall for a hurt puppy. Like here's a guy who is got it so bad for the woman he lost. In reality, you should be going the other way. You know, like this is a person who's got a lot of crap to work out and yet she sees him well-dressed and tall and oh i i think you know? she i think there was a legit spark between them it wasn't just a, a like a sex thing or a or a uh oh we were supposed to be playing this theater yeah. for, yeah, for but this murder still, she's, but, she's taking pity on him because he's got it bad and at the same time it's like no, oh i never i never got, got it bad. That. i, I never nothing i never do. never got oh, that yeah, I, yeah. I always got it as she is being driven by love, not by a hurt puppy. She's like, why? Why shouldn't I deserve the relationship that I want? I was the last doing this for the money. I, I was doing it for the money, particularly after that. And by the way, that that's another loop in, in the in, in the film is uh, uh, when they go to this historian that seems to have way too much information or is just telling a good story. Who knows? He knows uh, but who they, shot who in the El Trusted yeah, well, totally, in 1937. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe I want to know that. Uh, but but anyway, when he tells the story of, oh, men could just throw women away uh, at, at the time, like that's also what happens. Like, so there's, it's a, it's a tight little, it's a tight little screenplay. But I, I, I wanted to say that I love the mid-century phrase, holding a torch for somebody. I just, I just say, I, I, I guess I occasionally hear that now, not much. 
but and you know this movie's sixty plus years old, but I just love that. Which would have been a, I think, new phrase, like a a, a modern vernacular phrase at at the time in nineteen fifty eight. Yeah. But I but I just I just love that phrase. It's kind Did of. Did I say that, or is that in the is that in the film? It's in the film, and okay. you said it. So <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah. it's funny because like you mentioned that, that. Listen, that's another thing that you mentioned. Like this film seems a lot more nefarious by a modern lens of a man walking up to a woman's hotel room. That's another thing that we're like, as time goes on, we're, we're, we're really, really realizing more and more and more of these people, mostly men who hold on to their feelings for somebody, even after they've made it clear, like that they're gone. Like that is bad. You know, like at, at one time we used to think that was romantic and that was noble yeah. and what have you. It's like, no, no, no. The, this ship has sailed either by decree or by circumstance holding on to that both for yourself and for the other person is bad. And that's one of those things where in a modern context, it's, it really undercuts how pleasant and how sweet and how, you know, what we're supposed to think of Jimmy Stewart, really a lot of other actors playing this guy. It is not going to work. Like you need Would, George Bailey from Bedford Falls right. playing this guy. Otherwise, you are the same way that you needed Anthony Perkins playing Norman right. Bates. So what you're saying is you would not watch a musical remake of Vertigo uh, starring Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. You wouldn't Absolutely. watch that. Is that. That would not be. You'd be like no. Hamilton. This is not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that is not a good idea. Um, yeah, this, I mean, you know, we, we've danced around it enough. This, this is a movie about obsession. This is a movie about, you know, like anybody's obsession with anything, one person's obsession with one person. Uh, this is probably the movie about obsession. Like when I went looking for other side suggestions, I, I did some researching of movies about obsession and I kept coming up with pale imitations or nothing that really kind of gets to the core um and just and and how just corrosive you know again that green it is no i got no i've got no (laughs) argument uh i've got i've got no i will say this though it's it's um it's charming even though it's it's not supposed to be but it's charming to me when the film like jumps up out of its subtext and just makes it textual when when he's in the boutique and the women are walking out the dresses and she says it like i think three times so clearly the screenwriter wants you to get it it's like boy you really know what you want yeah yeah (laughs) that's like is that hitchcock being funny or is that supposed (laughs) to be disturbing it's all of the above it's really good it's really it is again again there's not a lot of side characters in the movie and they're not played by a lot of actors that have um, stood the pop cultural test of time. I would argue Kim Novak's even on the border of that, but, but Jimmy Stewart is unquestionably like people like, you know, he, he's, he's still in the popular cultural consciousness, if not at the forefront, but a lot of the character actors um, uh, are, are not, uh, but they all do that. That British thing. I always think of it in British films where the, where the character actors just look their parts without makeup or anything. They just come in and they're like, bam, fully formed character actors in the background. They're yeah, not like the guy who run, Like they're the not, guy who runs the Argosy bookshop. Like he's bald. Perfect, he's like, you know, he's, he's not tall. 
Um, the, the bookshop, which uh, nobody can seem to actually agree on why it dims, aside from the fact that it's a dark story yeah. and it's it's the idea yeah, that yeah, like, yeah, I noticed you, that I I noticed that in again I'm watching the 2012 remaster so yep. clearly there was an argument in the remastering room on do we keep this or, yeah, or no, do we not and they yeah, settled no, on keep it, keep it. Yeah, even if it was like a focus puller had too much coffee that day or something it, like nobody <laughs> seems to be able to agree on exactly why it's there except that it was deliberate uh there, there's okay. talk of there, there's talk I, of we're, we're into room 237 territory basically here. <laughs> yeah like there, there's talk i don't of, it doesn't look deliberate to me it looks like Oops. I mean, maybe they kept it deliberately. It's, maybe it was it's, a it's happy that, accident that yeah, they were like, it's not that it this goes is dark. great. It's that it goes so dark. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, like, it goes in like four steps too. Yeah, it, it, you it, almost it, yeah. can't see them. It, the lights in the bookstore aren't on. I mean, the scene is lit because yeah, you yeah, can yeah, see yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if yeah, you yeah. look, the lights in the bookstore are not on. Um, so there's the thought that it's like getting towards the end of the day and it's that moment of, oh, I'm sitting in the dark. I should turn on a light. Um, and then when they step outside, the bookstore actually lights up, but the lights are still not on. Yeah, so it is yeah. something very deliberate. This is, this is the, this, has, no, I don't think it is. This is the, this is the scene in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining where <laughs> Shelley Duvall and Danny are watching television and the television is not plugged in. Uh, the, the cord, <laughs> the cord was left out either by accident or for aesthetic reasons. Uh, and, and people are like, stretching for thematic meaning there and you know you can graft on hey it's right on point with the film you can graft on what it is i mean listen it is on point with the story of carlotta like talking about how yep. carlotta had a child yeah, she her lover tells it like a ghost story and it's then a ghost chucked story. her like you know yeah he might as well have had, should be covering at that time he might as well have had the flashlight or if you're british the torch, torch. flashed up to his face you know like with the <laughs> under like telling the spooky story right it, yeah. it it's it's good exposition and i guess if someone's got their itchy trigger figure on the house lights all yeah. the better yeah <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we end every matinee cast with a, um, a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Kurt Halfyard, there's a ton of things we could take away from and keep from Vertigo, but what would you keep if you could from this movie? I have this unnatural love of wallpaper. And uh, paper in this movie, oh my God, <laughs> for reminding me. It's a whole conversation. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it was at that time. The wallpaper in the womb-like Ernie's um, uh, restaurant. Sorry about the name on that. It just feels like missed opportunity on Ernie's. Ernie's feels like <laughs> it a roller. It feels uh, that's Ernesto. Yeah, but it feel, Ernie's feels like like a roller skating burger joint. Yeah. That's what it is. Anyway, but the when when you mix red and green together you should immediately think Christmas. That's what like red and green in the Western world, but it's, it's a, it's a testament to the production design and execution of this movie that when you see that womb like restaurant full of diners that still has loads of highly textural tactile wallpaper on display. And then her in the, with that green, like over the shoulder number thing going on that you do not think of Christmas. You just no. go, you just are, you just, yeah, and they feel the vibrance of Technicolor. And here's my art background coming in. They should clash. Red and green do not actually go. They are not complementary colors. Is it either. like purple and orange? Uh, no, purple and orange actually goes better 
than red and green do. It does not go with green. It is on, it is, you know, either one of them, it is one of the primaries. You need a complementary color to go with. Right. Okay. Got and it. So it, it should really not work, but yet it does. Um, I think if I was to take a souvenir from this movie, um, I want that car. I was thinking about that car again last week when I rewatched Top Gun for the first time in a long time because Kelly McGillis drives a classic car that's very much that shade of green. And I think it's a Jaguar too, because it doesn't have a grill. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. They're a nightmare, by the way, to maintain. I'm sure they are. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure they are. But I, I you know, I don't want to, I don't want to like, you know, maintain it, but I want to at least, you know, do one of those things where I can go rent it for a weekend and, you know, like just drive, especially driving it around San Francisco. When, it's not a fun city to drive. But when it's you renew your vows with Lindsay at some point, get a green car. Get green get, see if you can find at least that era of uh, apparently fun fact um when they were remastering uh vertigo they actually got the paint chips from jaguar in the Ooh, 50s to make sure to make that sure. they had the right so it was a one way of calibrating the color of the i love whole, that that's the, the i love that that's film. the control test that's pretty well good. because Usually you know they only paint they 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 only paint so many colors on cars yeah. factory right and yeah. and yeah one might think well maybe they because of green being green in this movie that they paint that they 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 custom painted the jaguar but apparently as you said there have been periods in history where automakers were like yes we have a factory green um i always figured with all the electric cars out there that, that they why are a few yeah. of them it, it green is, itself. feels on the nose <laughs> but no they don't they for some reason this weird light blue is the color of electric cars but anyway yeah. it's it um, there we go vertigo 1958 it's a masterpiece I, you know i i do believe that there are people out there who don't like this movie i'd be interested to hear why uh you know it, it is listen it's, it's an unlikable movie yeah it's, it's an gross, unlikable it's movie it's i i i don't not long, i'm not long, surprised but... at all this is the same argument of uh, of blade runner yeah like people have major i'm talking the original one yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh people have issues with the pacing people have issues with uh the symbolism like there's there's so many and, and um, also toxic relationship movie yeah. there's another beautiful uh so 1980s live and well but anyway the, the i get why people you know if you if you like conventional storytelling and movies the, all of the the awesomeness and the the circles within circles and the the craft and the costumes and Bernard Herrmann's score just doing the work. That thing is like a racehorse. It's just the, going all the time. The character um, unto itself. It's just going. But you know, if you if you hate these people and they're hateable, <laughs> make no yeah. mistake. Yeah. They may have human concerns and foibles, but they're also hateable. Yeah, yeah I can see why people uh, uh, don't would don't not like, like this it. movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, or at matinee underscore CA, Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Vertigo? We are going to take a quick break and wrap up this show with some brief other sides right after this. We're back. He's Kurt Halfyard. I'm Ryan McNeil. We're going to do a short-ish, <laughs> as short as it gets with Mr. Halfyard here. Uh, other side, we've been talking about Vertigo. It's uh, my birthday episode, Matinee Cast 286. Um, <laughs> Kurt, you actually kind of tapped on at least one of my other side selections. Um, so I, I think I'll kind of start there. When I was thinking of 
the scale of this movie that I brought up and how it uses San Francisco. I was thinking about other movies where scale is a part of it. You know, scale in film, whether it's shot practically or whether it's shot digitally, I don't really give a crap whether something is created digitally or whether something is created practically. Um, I think the effect that you come away with at the end is what matters. Whether or not you rearranged an entire city to do it, we were talking about before. It does not matter if it's a technical exercise. It's nice. You know, it's neat. It's cute. It's a great, you know, feather that you can put in your hat. But I've used before the example of Steven Spielberg's The Terminal, the, the, the farcical comedy with Tom Hanks stuck in this airport. They built that terminal as a set so that the camera could zip around it and they, I had no idea. I well, had no idea. But here's, I mean, because here's the thing: it really doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's right, great right, right, right. that they did that because then you don't have to empty out a terminal to shoot. Right. Yeah. I, I assume there's always an airport terminal about to be demolished yeah. in the world. Yeah. Like whether it's in yeah. Prague or whether it's in Kuala Lumpur or yeah. whether it's in Adelaide. Yeah. <laughs> you but know what nobody I mean? has ever but, given but, that movie extra points. For of, building the entire space. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, but yeah. When, so I did want to think about a movie where it uses scale to great effect. And you actually already touched on it. And it's a film that as well is dark and people treating people badly. I thought about the original Blade Runner from 1982. Um, it's also a good companion film with Vertigo in that it is a film that was not well received when it first dropped and as time has gone on and on and on, it is now a modern classic so much so that it got a sequel. I would never want to see a sequel to Vertigo, but um, yeah, Blade Runner. Um, it just seems not just when they're out in that city, like when that movie opens and you're drifting oh, over those, over those with the Vangelis uh, refineries score yeah, and, and the, yeah. the flames. Yeah. yeah scales. Uh, you know, where you're drifting over Los Angeles in the past, by yeah. the way, now, you know, yeah. it was yeah. Los Angeles in the future, but now it's Los Angeles in the past. Right. That is episode 286 of the matinee cast. I'm so thankful. Kurt was able to come by, uh, celebrate my birthday, take the ball for a spot start. Come on back Monday, June 20th for episode 287 um june is a weird month for movies so i'm not entirely sure what we might talk about yet we might talk about the cronenberg kurt seen it says it's amazing um there's some other things making the rounds out there on demand we'll see what we can do um kurt if you want to follow kurt the best thing to do is follow his instagram because they're always amazing um whether they're little snippets of life or or you know welcome post shots you have two you've got one that you've just dedicated to right. your caribbean travels right so not to my caribbean travels i really like the one particular island in the Caribbean, uh, which is Tobago, which is the small island, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, so I, I realized I've been there so many times with my DSLR and my phone. You have and, terabytes. Uh, yeah, I have like thousands of photos. And, and someone said, you know, you should probably find some outlet for those. So like yes, it. you can, uh, my, my philosophy with Instagram seems to be at odds with the platform where most people just take pictures of themselves. I, Listen, I you almost never see you, me yeah, yeah you almost never you, see me in my pictures it's what i'm i, I look at photography of what i'm looking at yeah. not look at me look at me so yeah, yeah. I was, usually it's I, what i'm eating i i was in my own feed this week and i think it's the first time i've been in my own feed all yeah, exactly it feels strange when uh, you so if people want to follow either your feed or the or the tobago feed where can they find them so uh my feed is at 
triflic, uh, like the strong organic acid, T-R-I-F-L-I-C. Um, I'm sure if it were a color, it would be green. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the Tobago account is all one word, no spaces, no underscores, no nothing. Uh, the, the word one, O-N-E, man, Tobago army. And I've got, I do a picture a day nice. and I've kept this up for at least 200 days. We'll see You'll keep when it, up be, well, when it stops being forget. a joy yeah. and it starts being another thing I have to do, yeah. that's maybe when it will stop. But at the moment, um, it's fun because it lets me look back through uh, all of my, I, I don't generally post my family in the feed, yeah, yeah. but I, you know, all of my pictures are mixed all together. So it's a good way to have some personal reason to revisit 10 years of travel to that particular island, and which is lovely, and you should go. Love it. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on, you can find the show on Spotify, Pocket Casts, Google, Stitcher Radio, Apple, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, Podchaser. Basically, anywhere you find a show, I'm there. If you don't, let me know. I'll put it there. It's easy. Uh, any feedback you have on Vertigo, uh, leave me a comment in the, in the comments section of the site you can email me ryan at the matinee.ca on twitter i am matinee underscore ca uh and there's always facebook facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts mr halfyard well first off as always uh thank you for having me i wasn't sure how talking about one of the most fetid discussed dissected movies in cinema history would go as a conversation but it was a absolute delight it was it was as much of a delight to get into it uh as it was to watch it for the eighth yeah. or ninth time um so yeah and i for, i'd completely forgotten that we had that <laughs> years ago we we watched when they blew it up to 70 mil and yep. showed it at, at lightbox that we yep. were together at that screening so it seems it all in comes the nature around, of man. circles yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and whatnot it seems uh it's very much on point it's always a pleasure to sit down in this case, virtual, still just as fun, but also fun with a meal and or, or on a balcony overlooking marching bands. Uh, this is your old place. Oh, so yeah. I look forward to the King Street traffic or, or Simcoe or wh- whatever view you have on the side of the building uh, when just I can you wait, get man. over your place. But might I, have, I think that might, might even do it soon. before the summer's out. We'll see how this uh, all goes. I, I would think there's a high probability of that. Sure. Whether, whether or not anyone listens to the... <laughs> That's like recording it, just be it's all just for us. Exactly. <laughs> the audience, what audience? For Kurt, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee. Here's.